And so this week, we begin looking at the idea of serving the community. And one of the ways we serve God is by serving our community. So as we start this morning, I kind of want to give you several scriptures by way of background that will serve as kind of a backdrop, if you will, for considering this idea of serving the community. In Matthew 23, Jesus is talking to the crowds and, and he's talking to them about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he said that they loved their positions. He said that they used their positions uh, to their own advantage to have people serve them. They tied up heavy loads and they put them on people, but they wouldn't even lift a finger to help anyone. And they loved the important positions of honor everywhere they went, in the synagogues and at banquets. And in essence, they viewed people as servants who were there to advance them. But Jesus said that his disciples were not to be like that. We come to verse 11 and he says, the greatest among you will be the servant of all. And then in Mark chapter 9, here Jesus and his disciples, they had been on their way to Capernaum. And, and when they arrived, Jesus asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? Now, many of you who are parents, you know, who've ever been on a road trip with children in the back seat, know what he's talking about, right? If you've ever experienced that, Jesus knows what, what it's like. His disciples, they were arguing about something stupid in the back seat of the caravan. And I imagine that Jesus was often tempted to look back at, at his disciples and say, don't make me stop this caravan. You know, or Peter, James, John, keep it up. I'll turn this caravan around. They're arguing on the road. So Jesus asked them what they were arguing about. And it says that they kept quiet because they were arguing about who was the greatest. They were embarrassed and they didn't want to say. And there's really, there's something to be learned from this. You know, because when they thought that Jesus wasn't listening, they engaged in all kinds of selfish, self-centered, self-aggrandizing arguments. They, they pushed themselves forward. They, they claimed the most important positions when they thought that Jesus wasn't listening. They didn't want Jesus to know about it. But then they found out that Jesus was listening. And, and when he asked them about what they were arguing about, nobody says anything. I mean, Peter... James, John, Andrew, none of them steps forward and says, you know, well, Jesus, it's like this. You see, we were arguing about who's the greatest because all of these guys here think they're the greatest when clearly I'm the greatest. So, Jesus, would you just set these guys straight so that um, we can all know that I'm the greatest and move on? I mean, nobody says that, right? Because they all know how ridiculous that sounds when Jesus is listening. You know, sometimes we forget that Jesus is listening, right? I mean, really, when we get ourselves in trouble by what we're talking about, what's happening? We've kind of forgot that Jesus is listening. Jesus hears what we say. And so here, Jesus asked them what they were arguing about uh, on the road, and it says the disciples kept quiet. In verse 35, Jesus says to them, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Jesus knew what they were arguing about, and he knew their issue and what they needed. And then to drive the point home, he, he takes a little child in his arms, and he says to them in verse 37, whoever welcomes one of these little children 
in my name welcomes me. And what he's saying is, you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, well, well they didn't have any time for, for children. They, they, they were seeking positions of power. They were seeking honor and influence for themselves from among those who wield the most power and influence in society. And so they wouldn't think about stopping to spend time with a child because what use would that be? The child can't offer them anything. The child can't advance them in any way. But Jesus says, serve children. Serve those who can't offer you anything. And when we serve those who can't offer us anything in return, we're welcoming Jesus himself. And then in Mark 10, James and John, apparently, they they put their mother up to going to Jesus to ask, ask Jesus if he would grant them the two most important positions in his coming kingdom, to sit at his right hand and his left hand. Can I ask you something? How lame is that? I mean, here these grown men ask their mommy to go get something from Jesus for them. That's kind of lame. And Jesus basically says, you know, guys, look, the world's leaders act like this. They lord it over one another. They seek positions of authority for their own sake. But this shouldn't be how you act. With you, whoever wants to become great, among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be the first must be the slave of all. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. Now, I want to take a minute just to look a little bit deeper into those two words, servant and slave, because they'll help us understand this idea of servanthood a little bit better, this idea of serving God and serving the community. Now, when it says servant, it must be your servant. The, the underlying Greek word there is diakonos. Diakonos. Can you say that with me? Diakonos, right? Now you learned a Greek word, right? Diakonos. And it means servant, like a household servant, someone who is dedicated to meeting the needs of someone else, someone whose purpose is to carry out and advance the agenda of someone else. And it's often translated as as servant, and sometimes translated as deacon. It's the, it's the word that, that uh, the Greek word, when you see in the Bible, you see the word deacon, it's the word diakonos. And uh, the word deaconess is the female form of the same word. So the essence of the office of a deacon or a deaconess is a person who serves the purposes of Jesus in helping the pastors to advance the kingdom of God, advance the kingdom of Jesus. And can I just stop to say here that I am so thankful for our deacons and our deaconesses here, and I can tell you that they love Jesus, they love the body of Christ, they love serving. But this word here, it doesn't only mean someone with the office of a deacon. It doesn't just apply to those who are elected. Here in this passage that we're looking at, it means anyone who wants to be a disciple of Jesus. You are a servant, a diakonos, of Jesus. If you want to be a disciple, that means that uh, you are dedicated to serving the purposes of Jesus and advancing his cause. And if you want to be a great diakonos, a great servant, you will also be a servant towards others as well. That's the word diakonos. Now, the second word here, the one that's translated in this passage as slave, that is the word doulos. Doulos. Can you say doulos with me? Doulos. All right, now you've learned two Greek words this morning. Diakonos and doulos. 
And this word is often sometimes translated as servant, sometimes as slave, sometimes as bond servant. I think that might be maybe the best translation. And, and Jesus says that the one who would be first must be the doulos, the slave, the servant, the bond servant of all. And, and, now, and we tend to recoil at this idea today, right? The idea of being a slave of someone else is really repugnant. How can Jesus say that we should be slaves of all, that we should be doulos? of all. And here is where a little bit of cultural context is needed to make our 20th century minds, our 20th century Western minds, understand the first century Eastern concept. <clears throat> and so when we hear the word slave or slavery, we immediately have images of the horrible and barbaric slave trade an institution that existed not only in America, but in much of the world uh, for several hundred years up until the mid-1800s. Or we have images of the terrible sex trafficking industry that many people are still enslaved in today. And we rightly recoil at these images. And that's appropriate because it's awful. It was, it's a sin against the image of God in humanity. Now, for the first century Mediterranean mind, there were two kinds of slavery. Now, the first one looked a lot like what we've just described. I mean, that type of slavery did exist then, and uh, where people were taken and forced into slave labor, often when one kingdom conquered another or a city became conquered uh, and its inhabitants were captured and they were taken and forcibly turned into slaves or they were sold as slaves for profit. Now, some people, and you may have heard this, some people are critical of the Bible at this point, claiming that the Bible uh, either fails to condemn slavery or even maybe condones it. However, this is an error. It's not accurate. The Bible actually condemns this kind of slavery, the forcible taking and selling of people created in the image of God. So let, let me show it to you. In 1 Timothy, Paul is talking about a group of what he calls lawbreakers and rebels. And he provides a list of these lawbreakers and rebels. And he says that the sinful, the irreligious, the unholy, murderers, liars, perjurers, the sexually immoral, those practicing homosexuality, those who kill their fathers and mothers. And with all of these lawbreakers and rebels, he also lumps in with them slave traders. Slave traders. Anyone involved with the slave trade. And that would be those who capture them those who sell them, and those who buy them and use them. The Bible condemns the slave trade. But in the first century Mediterranean world, there was also another institution that was called uh, slavery, the same word used, doulos, and it usually had to do with paying off debts. It was their accepted cultural system of paying off debts. They didn't have bankruptcy laws. They didn't have debtor's prison. And so when someone needed to pay off a debt, it tended to look like this. Someone who owed a large debt might sell themselves uh, to a wealthy person, sell themselves as a doulos to a wealthy person. Or possibly, a judge would sentence someone who owed a large debt to be sold as a doulos to pay off the debt. And the wealthy person then paid off or assumed the debt that was owed. And in return, he retained the services of the one whose debt was paid off. And the agreement... And this is kind of key here. The agreement would be for a certain period of time. It wasn't forever, like, okay, now you're forever a slave and your children are forever slaves, you know, in perpetuity, right? It was for a certain period of time, a shorter time for a smaller debt and a longer time for a larger debt. 
And so the doulos had the advantage of having the debt paid and also coming under the provision of the wealthy person. And he also knew that at some point in the future, the debt would be paid and he would be freed. And then the one paying the debt had the advantage of the services of this doulos for the time period that was set and the advantage of uh, inexpensive labor as well. In the long run, the doulos was probably less expensive than paying for a hired worker. Now, I'm not justifying this system or saying that it is the best system that we've ever come up with for paying off debt. I'm just saying that this is what it was. And there were many, many people who were this kind of doulos during the time of Jesus and the apostles. And uh, it was this kind of slavery that the New Testament neither condemned nor endorsed. Instead, they gave instructions for living in it. So when Paul said, slaves obey your earthly masters and masters provide your slaves with what is right, he's not condoning the slavery we think about today. Instead, he's acknowledging this do-law system and giving instructions to Christians who live in the world where this is the system. And so he says that masters should treat their do-laws fairly and justly because God is watching and he will hold you accountable if you mistreat them. And then the doulos, to the doulos, he says, to work hard, uh, not only when their eye is on you, but uh, work as, as if you're working for God himself, because from him you will receive a reward. Now, it, it's right here that we come up against something that I, I think is really cool. I mean, this is why I'm telling you all of this. Okay, if you checked out when I said diakonos and doulos, okay, now it's time to check back in, all right? All right, if somebody's sleeping next to you, please wake them up right now. All right, uh, so Paul called himself a doulos or servant of Jesus. In Titus chapter 1, verse 1, he called himself a doulos of Jesus. And, and he said that believers in Rome should view themselves as doulos or bondservants or slaves of God. And then in Corinth, um, he told believers there that the, those who had faith in Jesus were Christ's doulos or slaves or bondservants. And then Peter wrote to Christians everywhere that they should live as God's doulos or God's bondservants. And when you understand this historical and cultural context, you begin to understand that, that this is not God violently taking people against their will and forcing them to do something that they don't want to do. This is not what it means to be a doulos of Jesus. Instead, the image that emerges is this. I had a huge sin debt. You had a huge sin debt. And, and we could never pay it off. It was hopeless. But then this wealthy master shows up, and his name is Jesus. And he's rich in righteousness, and he's rich in love, and he's rich in mercy, and he's rich in forgiveness. And this master says, I will pay that debt, that huge sin debt that you can do nothing about. I will pay that debt. And when Jesus died on the cross, he was paying our huge sin debt, paying off that sin debt that we owed paying the penalty for our sins. Our sin debt was paid in full. And as a result, we become the doulos of Jesus, the servants of Jesus, the bondservant of Jesus. He's paid our debt. He's, taking, he's taken us into his house. And now, instead of being a slave to sin, instead of serving sin, now we are the doulos of God. We serve his purposes. We happily and joyfully serve his purposes because it's way better than serving sin. It's way better than being a slave to sin. And then next, there's something else that is really cool that happens and that emerges from this. Uh, and this one comes from ancient Hebrew culture. 
You see, in the ancient Hebrew culture, the time of Moses, they had a very similar system for paying off debts. You can find it if you want to read about it later in Deuteronomy chapter 15. And a Hebrew who had a debt um, that he could not pay could sell himself into servanthood for a specified number of years in order to to pay off that debt, and then they would be set free afterwards. And not only that, it says that the master who's setting them free, it shouldn't be a burden to them. They should rejoice and actually make a large gift from their herds and flocks to this person who was being set free and rejoice with them. But then it goes on to describe a situation in which a servant who's being released says that he loves his master and his family and uh, he loves being in his house and he doesn't want to leave. And in that case, it says that they go to, to, go, to go to the elders and then pierce his ear with an awl. And that would be a symbol that he's staying with his, his master and that he would then be a servant in his master's house for the rest of his life. Now, at first, you might ask, and I might ask, why would anybody do that? Now you can be set free. You've paid off the debt, you know, and you can be set free. Why would anybody do that and say, no, I love being in this house, and I want to stay here the rest of my life? You know, to, to us, especially to our Western minds, that doesn't make much sense. You know, why would you do that? But this is a beautiful image of what it is to be a servant, a doulos in the house of Jesus. You come into the house because you owed a debt. The master Jesus paid your debt, and so you start to serve in the house. But it doesn't take very long to figure out that this house is awesome. I mean, this master is awesome. Serving this master is way better than serving that other master of sin. This master is full of love. This master is full of grace. This master is full of mercy. He's full of kindness. And you know, and sure, sometimes the work of, of this master, the, the work that he's involved in, it can be challenging. I mean, it can be difficult at times. You know, sometimes we face trials. Sometimes we get tired. But, but the master is awesome. You came in as a servant, but now he's calling you an adopted son or daughter. You came in as a debtor, but now the master is calling you an heir, a co-heir with Christ. This house is awesome, and the rewards he promises are out of this world. And you begin to feel like, you know, I never want to leave this house. I never want to leave this family. I want to serve this master forever. Jesus, don't ever send me away. Jesus, pierce my ear with an all. I want to be identified with you forever. Jesus, be my master forever. Jesus, I want to be your servant forever. Because his house is awesome. And this master is awesome. I want to give you one more doulos scripture before we come back to our text in Ephesians. Uh, this, is, this is awesome. Don't you think God's word's awesome? God's word is awesome. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning with verse 19, he says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave or a doulos to everyone to win as many as possible. I have made myself a slave, a doulos, to everyone, to win as many as possible. Now, wait a minute. He's not a slave, but he makes himself a servant, a slave, a doulos to everyone for a specific purpose, to win as many as possible. The goal... uh, The goal is to to win as many as people as possible. He serves people in order to win them to Jesus. And then he elaborates a little bit about what he means in the next few verses. He says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. 
to those under the law. I became like one under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak, to, the, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. He's a doulos to everyone, a bondservant to everyone. He's saying that whatever community I find myself in, I make myself a servant of that community so that I can win as many as possible to Jesus. And he serves them by finding out what they need in order to be able to hear the message of Jesus. In other words, he builds bridges to them. To whatever community he is in, he builds a bridge so that he can share the gospel of Jesus with them. Listen, if we're going to serve the community the way Jesus wants, we need to continue to build bridges to them. We need to continue to strengthen the bridges that we already have. And we need to build more bridges to them. This is why I've been praying about God. I really would love for you to somehow make a way for us to, to have a life recovery here. We can build a bridge to people who are struggling with all kinds of addictions and share the gospel with them. Meet that need and share the gospel with them. This is why I've been praying, God, God, I'd really like to see us be able to have a grief share here. That You call somebody uh, who can meet people in that, that, that hour of their greatest need and greatest loss in their life and be able to, to share with them and, and bear that burden with them and then share the love and the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe God wants us to be about building bridges to the community. Because we view ourselves as servants of the community for the sake of the gospel. Jesus loves people. Jesus loves the people of Lancaster. And so if we are the doulos of Jesus, then we must also be the doulos of the community of Lancaster for the sake of the gospel. All right, now let's go back for a second now to our theme scriptures in Ephesians 4. And I want you to see if we can. I want to see if I can tie these thoughts together a little bit. Last week we said that all Christians should view themselves as servants of Jesus. And today we pushed that a little bit further and looked at what it means to be a diakonos and a doulos of Jesus and a doulos of the community for the sake of the gospel to advance the gospel. And by now, I hope you're saying, you know, yes, Pastor Paul, Jesus is my master, Jesus is my Lord, and I love serving Jesus, and I'm buying into this idea of serving the community with the gospel of Jesus. But the question becomes, you know, what does that look like? How does that happen? What does it look like? Well, in our passage here in chapter 4, verse 1, he says that we should live a life worthy of the calling we've received. And then in verses 2, to, he's going to tell us how to do that. Verses 2 to 10, he talks about unity in the body of Christ. In verses 11 to 14, he talks about being equipped to do the works of service that God has prepared in advance for us to do. We talked about that last week. And then we come to the beginning of verse 15, and it says this, speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. You know, most times when I hear that verse quoted, uh, someone is like really angry. Someone's like usually really upset. And, you know, they're venting, they're expressing anger uh, at people, they're, they're tearing somebody apart, or, or they've just really pasted somebody verbally, and then suddenly they stop and pause and look at you and say, 
You know, the Bible says, speak the truth in love, brother. And, you know, you, you feel like, well, boy, I'd love to experience some of that love part of that, right? You know, some of that, the love part doesn't seem to be there. You know, the Bible says, speak the truth in love. And, uh, and you're thinking, I'm not feeling that part of it. You know, can we talk? That is not what this verse is about. This verse is, I think, maybe one of the most misunderstood, uh, abused verses of the Bible. I, th I think I've heard this verse taken out of context and misapplied maybe more than any other uh, verse in the Bible. This verse is not about rebuke. Right? It's not about rebuking somebody or setting somebody straight, you know, because I'm just speaking the truth in love, you know. You don't see any of that in this context. There's no rebuke in this context. As a matter of fact, what you do see in this context is humility, gentleness, patience, love, unity, right? And so what does this mean then, speaking the truth in love? This verse is the how and the what of the works of service that Paul was talking about in verses 11 to 13. It's the how and the what. It's, this verse is the how we reach out. This is versus the how we do the works of God and touch the community. So let's kind of take it apart for a minute, and then we'll put it back together. We're going to deconstruct it and then put it back together, right? So there are three important things that I want you to see in this portion of, the, of a verse, speaking the truth in love. The first is that we speak the truth in love. We serve the community with the truth. We must offer them the truth. This is what Jesus offered the world. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. We must offer the world the truth. And the truth is that there's a terrible sin problem. Sin separates us from God, and, and this sin problem causes all kinds of problems and destruction in people's lives. And, but the truth also is there's an awesome sin solution. Jesus died on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sin. He rose from the grave. He ascended from heaven. And he gives us the Holy Spirit to give us new life, to make us like Christ, to be with us. The truth is, the world really doesn't have the answers that everybody is looking for. But the Bible has the answers that everybody really, really needs. The truth is that the world is filled with violence and disorder and dysfunction, but Jesus is filled with grace and love and mercy and kindness and truth. The truth is that Jesus takes what was lost and makes it found. Jesus takes what was dead and makes it alive. Jesus takes what was estranged and brings it close. Jesus takes what was dirty and makes it clean. Jesus takes what was unrighteous and makes it righteous. The truth is, Jesus takes what was diseased and makes it well. Jesus takes what was weak and makes it strong. He takes what was bound and makes it free. He takes enemies and makes them friends. And Jesus takes what was defeated and makes it victorious. That's the truth. That's what we serve the world with. That's what we serve the community with. We speak the truth in love. And then secondly, we serve the community by speaking. Speaking the truth in love. We communicate, we communicate with the community. This speaks of intentionality. We don't, we don't hope that they get it by osmosis. We don't, we don't just wait for them to figure it out or come to us asking about it. But we intentionally reach out to them. This speaks of relationship. We don't just speak at them. 
We speak with them. We do what it takes to build trust. We don't shout at them from across the way. We don't shout at them from the other side of a wall. We build relationships, you know. We speak the truth in love. And then we serve the community with love. Thirdly, we serve the community with love. Jesus loves us. Jesus loves the community. So we love the community. We need to intentionally love the community in practical ways. I mean the kind of act of love that Jesus had. Jesus left heaven. Jesus left his comfort zone in order to actively love us. And so we leave our comfort zone in order to love the community. I'm talking about the kind of act of love that designs ministries that meet real needs in the community. We serve the community with love. We speak the truth with love. All right, so now we deconstructed that a little bit. Let's put it back together if we can. Uh, God intends that all three of these things work together. So the idea is that if one of these things is missing, it doesn't work. It just falls apart. You know, I've had people um, say to me, well, I just have this gift, Pastor. I just speak the truth. You know, God hasn't gifted me with love. You know, so that's not my part of it. You know, or someone else says, I just want to just love people all the time. And, uh, you know, I mean, but I'm afraid if I say the truth, you know, someone will get offended. So I'm not really gifted with that part of the truth. I just love, you know. The Bible says to all of us, all three of these things, right? Speak the truth in love. And so if we have truth in love, but we don't speak it, what good is that, right? Because people then don't have access to the truth of God. They don't have access to the love of God, and it doesn't help anyone. But if we speak in love, but we avoid the truth, well, how does that help anybody? You still don't have any access to the truth. And if we speak the truth, but we don't do it in love, the Bible says that we are no better than just a clanging gong. Right? Like someone going around town, just gong, gong, gong. You get annoyed with that after a while, right? Speaking the truth in love. But when we are speaking the truth and it is filled with the love and grace and kindness and mercy of Jesus, then you've got something powerful. Then you've got something amazing. Then you've got the body of Christ doing the works that Jesus planned for them in advance. And the result is this. Speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head. That is Christ. Speak the truth in love. Now, as we get ready to conclude, I, I, I'd like us to read this entire passage in Ephesians one more time. And last week, you may remember, I had you maybe just sit quietly, maybe close your eyes and, and listen carefully as I read it to you. But this week, I would like to ask you if you would read it out loud with me, the entire passage. As a matter of fact, if you would stand, and we're going to read this together. And I don't want you to just say it, right? I don't want you to just kind of read it, wrote. I want you to declare it as a statement of faith and as a statement of purpose that this is who we are, this is who I am. I want you to convince me of it. I want you to convince heaven of it. I want you to convince the gates of hell that this is who we're going to be as the body of Christ in Lancaster First Assembly. Let's read it together. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up 
until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs> That's who I believe God wants us to be. We need to be about loving God and loving people. We're about growing in relationships with God and growing in relationships with each other. And we're about serving God and serving the community. Love, grow, serve. That's who we are. That's what we do.